Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And good morning again. So good to be with you this morning. Uh, As I said, we're continuing our Lenten journey uh, together. We're almost there. Like I said before, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, then Holy Week, and then Easter. But we're not there yet. And our text today is challenging us to sort of rethink and be reminded of the way of Jesus as we journey together to the cross. But before we get there, something happened in my life recently that got me thinking about our text for today. And if you have kids, anybody have kids out there? All right, cool. And, or maybe you spend time with kids, or any of you, were you kids yourselves one day? Um, Anyway, uh, <clears throat> got me thinking about our text today, because if you have kids, kids, they, they drink water, they drink milk, but most kids prefer something else, right? You go to get a kid's meal at a fast food restaurant, there's an option for kids. And kids, they often want this in their lunch, and at our, hel- our house, uh, my kids love this beverage far more than water, far more than milk, even chocolate milk, although maybe it's a tie sometimes. But <clears throat> the drink I'm talking about is, anybody guess what it is? It's juice, Right? Juice. Right? Kids love their juice. And it's not just the little toddlers. Even up in their teenage years, kids love juice. Whether it's Capri Suns, which are highly desired, or the juice boxes like Honest Kids. My kids love those ones. Even Costco's got the big old flat of 40 juice boxes, only 120 calories per six ounces. That's good for kids. Anyway, these Press's juice packages are highly coveted in the Hayes household. And even the parents may occasionally sneak one. Now, we don't always get them, right? right? You can't have a Capri Sun or a juice box whenever you want, right? You've got to first, you've got to ask for it, and it's not always there, right? When we kind of go in spurts on this. When we're feeling generous, we want to splurge a bit, we're going to buy some juice boxes, right? Now, something happened the other day. After we had spurged on a Costco flat of juice boxes, we were down two juice boxes. But we got three kids, Right? It's lunchtime, right? It's go time. You got to get your beverage on. One kid's spotting the dwindling resource and calls it, juice box, mine. Second kid, one chimes in, called it, it's mine. Third kid, left in the lurch, right? This happens in households all across the United States of America, whether it's with Girl Scout cookies, ice cream sandwiches, Pop-Tarts, and so much more. It happens when you have more kids than you have product, right? And the child must assert their will. They name it and claim it, and they called it mine. Put themselves in the right spot to get the glory, or the Capri Sun, or the Pop-Tart, or whatever it may be. They leave their siblings behind, because you've got to look out for number one. And if you see something that you want, you've got to go after it, right? If it leaves someone out, oh well. Even if it's your own brother or sister, oh well. You snooze, you lose. That juice box is mine. Now, This mentality morphs as we get older, right? We often call it success or achievement or ladder climbing, even upward mobility. You see something, you go after it, you got to get it yourself. Even if it means leaving others behind, even your own brothers and sisters, sibling rivalry of epic proportions. Now, speaking of upward mobility, right at the beginning of our gospel reading for today, Jesus and his disciples and many other people, they were going up, literally Upward mobile, physically going up. Right there, it says, verse 32, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going 
to happen to him. So they're all going up. Jesus is leading the way, going up to Jerusalem, going before them. So there's sort of intention here. There's purpose in what Jesus is doing. Now the disciples, it says, are astonished. So why are they astonished? Because Jesus is walking straight into the mix, you might say. They're expecting a violent confrontation to happen. So the disciples are astonished that Jesus would walk openly into the quote-unquote stronghold of the enemy. So, and then those who were following were also afraid, it said. So many pilgrims are coming up for the Passover. And apparently they are concerned at the ominous atmosphere of a possible conflict with Jesus and the, and the ruling authorities. They're afraid. And Jesus, he indicates to us, he's, he's, not, he's not joking around. He pulls the 12 aside and he predicts the suffering that he's about to endure for the third time in the Gospel of Mark. And when he does it, he flips upward mobility upside down. Yeah, he's going up to Jerusalem, but when he gets up there, he will fall down terribly. He says in verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And then in this third prediction, he gets really active. He says, they will condemn him to death, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Not the upward mobility maybe we had in mind. Those vivid details of the haunting images of Good Friday, of the suffering, of the pain. And you hear those words and maybe you think of uh, the passion of the Christ if you've seen that movie. Those, those images that you just can't get out of your mind. And Jesus is leading the way confidently with resolve, openly, before all, proclaiming that soon he, the Son of Man, is going to endure mocking. You ever been mocked before? He will be spit upon. Has anyone ever spit on you? I've had it happen. It's belittling. But it gets worse. He knows he will be flogged. That's whipped. That's tortured and then killed. Crucified. Jesus is a dead man walking. But he's walking with confidence, with purpose, with determination, with mission, with will, with strength and confidence, yet with complete and utter humility, walking to his death. Now, just like the other predictions of his suffering in the Gospel of Mark, the disciples didn't get it. In fact, it's as if James and John only heard the last part when he predicts that he will rise. In verse 35, it says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, Rabbi, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, first, that's kind of a crazy question, right? Not many people will be like, Oh, yeah, no problem. Especially when it's the student asking the teacher, the employee asking the supervisor, the disciple asking the rabbi. But Jesus doesn't scold them. He turns it back on them and he asks, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. So you hear that at first it's like, whoa, they totally didn't hear all that suffering, bit, flog, kill part. They just see Jesus confidently leading the way. They hear the rise up part, and they're like, whoa, this is going to happen. And they look in the fridge, and they see that there's only two juice boxes left. And there's ten other siblings that they got to compete against. And so they call it mine. Because Jesus only has one right and one left. They're like, we got to get this now. We got to seize this. And Jesus is like, verse 38, you don't know what you are asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? 
Now in the Old Testament, the cup is a metaphor for suffering or judgment. And the early Christians, they referred to martyrdom as baptism in blood. So these are two metaphors that are for suffering, but they're not seeing it. They think they can do it. Verse 39, we can, they answered. And then Jesus said to him, well, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. And they don't realize how much truth Jesus is speaking because they are going to suffer horribly. James will be beheaded for his faith. John imprisoned, exiled, tortured. Which is kind of prophetic for what Jesus says next in verse 40. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. It's so ironic that soon on Jesus' left and on Jesus' right will be two thieves suffering on a cross. And it's to that suffering on the left and on the right that James and John have been prepared for. It is a cup that they will drink. But it's no juice box of glory, right? It's not the upward mobility that they had in mind. It's not the ladder climbing they thought they were going to climb. It's not the kingdom of greatness that they were going to seize. And the rest of the disciples, they didn't get it either. They think that James and John are beating them to the punch. These are the ten siblings left without the juice box. It says, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Now, this most likely is not a righteous indignation. It's more like being jealous that James and John got the first crack, the first ask for a seat of power and glory and fame. They called it first, leaving their siblings in the dust. And you know how it goes when a kid is left without a juice box. You know what I'm talking about? I may or may not have observed said phenomenon lately in my own house. But after what Jesus said, seriously, after what Jesus said, how could James and John and the others be so blind, so callous, so ignorant, so selfish? It's like, did you hear what Jesus just said about his own suffering? And all you two and all you twelve, all you can think about is ruling with power and authority at his right and his left? And then it kind of hit me as I looked at this text more and I thought, how many times? How many times have I taken him for granted? How many times have I actually mocked Jesus, spit on Jesus, tortured Jesus, killed Jesus with my words, with my thoughts, with my actions, with my sins, with my hubris, with my greed, with my apathy, with my risk aversion, with a whole slew of sins? And then on top of that, how many times I have the audacity to ask him for greatness, for great things for me, for my benefit, Lord, give me all shapes and sizes of glory, power, prestige, and achievement, just like James and John. Yet I have the privilege of knowing the whole story. They didn't really totally get it all. It just reminded me it all boils down to our sinful nature. Our old Adam, our desires to put ourselves first, our desire to be the goat, the greatest of all time, right? And I'm not talking about Tom Brady. I'm talking about God. The deepest part of our brokenness wants to elevate ourselves to be God, to be greater than God, to be first, to make the story all about me. Now, this sort of self-centered struggle has been around a long time, right? Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve, we've inherited it. 
We see it in our culture. I mean, how does our culture and how does the world define greatness? What does it look like to do a great work? And I read a depressing article a number of years ago about the values that are being endorsed in many uh, popular shows for children, actually. In fact, a longitudinal study out of UCLA demonstrated that over a number of decades, values like fame went from... uh, Uh, the 15th spot up to the number one spot. Values like benevolence fell from the second spot down to the 13th. Tradition down to the 15th. And the top five values they they noticed were fame, achievement, popularity, image, and financial success. The professor overseeing the study stated that this is most likely contributing to the rise of narcissism in our culture. Well, like I said earlier, it's nothing new. James and John had bought into the narcissism of the culture of 2,000 years ago and its definition of greatness then. And so Jesus steps in to expose it and to kind of clarify and educate them. In verse 42, he says, Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, right? He says, regarded as rulers, Jesus points out that they're only regarded as rulers, only regarded as great. But what they do has nothing to do with true greatness or true leadership, Jesus is saying. James and John and the disciples had bought into the world's notion of greatness at the time, which was glory, fame, being first, dominate, tyrannize, subdue, control, rule, oppress, exploit, flaunt authority, grab that juice box and take it. Reminds me of a statement that Genghis Khan allegedly said. It's a terrible statement. He said, a man's greatest work, listen to this, how awful this is. A man's greatest work is to break his enemies, to drive them before him, to take from them all the things that have been theirs, to hear the weeping of those who cherish them. It's brutal. Yet the attitude, in many ways, continues to plague our world and even our own hearts, if we're honest. And it continues because it seems, it seems to win. But Jesus comes in the midst of that. He flips the world on its head. He calls that sort of worldview, that sort of thinking wrong. He, he calls it an illusion, a deception, an empty siren beckoning you to a prison of self-centeredness and destruction. He flips it all over and he says, this is not my way. He says, this is not our way. This is not your way. He says in 43, he says, not so with you. He said, instead, whoever wants to become great, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. What? The greatest of all time himself, Jesus Christ. He's defining greatness as service, serving other people, and then he keeps going. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, Jesus' teaching, Jesus' life turns the the worldly understanding of greatness and being first and grabbing the juice box. He turns it, he flips it on its head. The greatest of all time, the greatest, God himself in Jesus Christ lived a life of service, sacrifice. He gave his life as a ransom, a payment for you. 
It's the way to the cross. It's the way of the cross. It's the way from the cross until Jesus comes again. Self-giving service is the greatness recognized by God himself. And only those who give of themselves for others do something great. I think actually that resonates with, with our, our experience. If you pause long enough on it and you think on that long enough, it makes sense. From the well-known servant leaders of the world to the small unnoticed ones, those who give to others, those who follow in the way of Jesus and self-sacrificing for others are truly great. I mean, we could start thinking about our own community right here, right? As I just started thinking of people like you, Names started coming into my mind. I think of Mary Salgado, who has done so much for vulnerable children. I think of Kim Winovich, who leads our cancer ministry. I think of the, the Higgins, who lead our Celebrate Recovery ministry. I think of our life group leaders, who lead their groups in, in care and in service. I think of all the volunteers working here this morning to make worship happen. I think of the fourth Saturday and our community outreach volunteers. I think of our teachers in, in, in our school and in our public schools who selflessly give to kids and families. And I can just keep on going of all these lifts of people. They and you, making an eternal difference, living out true greatness, following in the way of Jesus to serve and give life. Reminds me of great people like Father Damien, Mother Teresa. And I love what Martin Luther King Jr. said and lived. He said that everybody could be great because anybody can serve. Let me, let me quote you what he said. He said, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato and Aristotle to serve. You don't know, have to know Einstein's theory of relativity to serve. You don't have to know the second theory of thermodynamics to serve. You only need a heart full of grace and a soul generated by love. My friends, that's who you are. Your heart is full of grace in Jesus Christ. Your soul is generated, ignited, empowered by a truly great sacrificial love in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave his life to ransom yours. He did something great for you, for me, for the whole world. And my friends, that word speaks to us as a community. It speaks to us as we journey to Easter together. It speaks to us and calls us to do something great, to serve, to give, and let that juice box go. Your siblings need it more than you. Amen?